Welcome to the Ed Alia podcast, hosted by Peter Kranitz and Brad Davis. Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy that help us understand its impact and explain our present situation. Hey, I'm Peter Kranitz. And I'm Brad Davis. And you're listening to the At Alia podcast. This is the final in our four-part series. It's four parts, right? Yeah, four yeah, parts. four-part yeah, series four uh, about theory in the time of quarantine. Today we're going to be talking about reformism. Uh, Brad, how about you introduce reformism to us? Yeah, so we're trying to wrap up this series, and, and we'll go on to maybe give a little bit of a review of what we've said and, and evaluate these different schools of thought at the moment. but. One that we haven't touched on yet is sort of a somewhat centrist reformist agenda of how we can get life back on track once the crisis is over or as quarantine is being lifted. And part of part of with reformism that sets it apart from what we were talking about before is our previous focuses have been kind of more on how to sort of build a new system in a way and how to uh almost kind of take a ground up approach to a new government as a response to this whereas this is more of working within the established framework to get us back on track sort of returning to uh, a sense of normalcy and functioning that we had before yeah so reformism accepts some of the the criticism of complacency or incompetence that the other ideologies we're talking about um discussed in terms of our, our preparation for coronavirus and the, the overall condition of American governance. But these different writers, thinkers, um, are all are all hopeful that the way things are are salvageable, just we need incremental policy reform, recommitment to uh, perhaps strategic ideals, and that through good public policy, we can become a strong state once more. Right. And a lot of these focus more on foreign policy than the other ones did. The other ones were much more about sort of domestic reforms and uh, how to kind of fix more of the problems at home. And this takes more of uh, to fix the problems at home. You have to kind of fix the problems with our relations abroad to start to do that. Absolutely. Which is an interesting way of, of trying to solve and address some of these problems, I, I think. The... One I would like to address uh, first, though, is a growing call, and it, it had been prior to the coronavirus crisis, but uh, this has really um, caused its proponents to double down, sort of a recommitment to what might be called autarky or trade independence, um, the ability for America to produce its own goods to have enough of all the resources it needs on its own terms without having a trade to survive. This, no. is, this is sort of a, a big part of like the Donald Trump America first type policies, right? Um, yeah. And I think that we also, Bernie Sanders was part of some pretty similar things along slightly different lines, but a, a similar um, idea of bringing industry back to America and keeping industry in America as much as possible to benefit American workers. Yeah, yeah, commitment to 
labor uh, as a group and, and those jobs uh, as important to American economic life, and also a recognition that, you know, when we're in an emergency and we need masks or ventilators or medicine, we can't rely on China or other countries to ship them. We need to have uh, emergency uh, materials here at home. And so the best of these pieces, I think, I've seen, or at least most indicative uh, of the conversation, was uh, the one written by William Upton in American Mind um, called Make America Autarkic Again. And very much he argues that I mean, in in the subheadline, domestic supply chains, not global ones, will save us. And for decades, we have been seeking out free trade agreements, trying to globalize our uh, trade and find the cheapest resources and products and workers possible from abroad. Yeah, I think that uh, what we're seeing now, um, not necessarily in the Upton piece, but sort of in general with the coronavirus response and the sort of in this this vein is that it's become a much more bipartisan type of thing like i think that uh previously it was a much more conservative and sort of more uh there's some liberals that were in favor of it but more of a conservative sort of thing but now we're sort of seeing a bit of a collapse of the the neoliberal project that brought us to a point where all of our uh all of our drugs all our ventilators all our face masks were manufactured in china and we don't have any supply of them domestically to use in this sort of situation yeah, and considering how exploitive uh, China has been of American markets, it it is, I do think, a little wild that we continue to rely on them so heavily, both in, in their stealing of intellectual property, in their um, manipulation of, of, of markets. It, I think it is quite frightening the way they, they have been poaching, maybe isn't the perfect word, but really trying to exploit the scientific research in the United States. Uh, immediately prior to this crisis, we saw uh, the issues with a Harvard, I believe, professor arrested by the FBI for the funding uh, the Chinese government was giving to his research, almost certainly in exchange for uh, privileged, privileged access to the results, uh, as well as China's work in uh, virology that I I don't think it would be fair to blame the crisis on Chinese virology work, but it, it is clear that there are issues with how the Chinese scientific establishment functions and how dependent it is on U.S. on the U.S. education system and taxpayer funding in American universities. Right. So the big idea with, with this piece and with this idea of reformism in this vein is more or less just that we need to uh, sort of stop allowing China to, to exploit us in that way and to bring those manufacturing and intellectual labor back into the U.S. into a domestic, uh, domestic sphere where we can more easily access them and use them without having to go with that intermediary. Yeah. Um, and perhaps one more example of this. I think uh, just this morning, uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas was talking about 
trying to prohibit foreign Chinese students from coming to the U.S. for the sake of studying any STEM fields uh, and trying to make it such that they could only study, uh, what was the example he gave? I think uh, if you want to come to the U.S. and study uh, the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, you're more than welcome, but we're not, we're not going to let you take away from our, our scientific research programs. Um, it is it is except in so far as china has certainly made a cons- had a concerted effort to take advantage of the american education system and use that to their profit which uh has been great effective policy for them is not to our greatest benefit uh, as a country. And so this sort of sphere of economic, particularly nationalism, a um, with those who are advocating for industrial policies and um, so this sort of economic nationalism and the advocacy for industrial policies and uh, American scientific output being directed towards American production output is very much growing in popularity. I think both on the uh, more Trump right and the Bernie left and might be the best way forward in terms of possible reform after this crisis should we turn to the the nadia shadwa piece also uh, in the atlantic now yeah uh well while we're on the topic of china i think uh nadia shadlo wrote an interesting article for the atlantic that the atlantic has published uh actually a handful in early april uh, a handful of very interesting articles discussing international affairs and foreign policy as it emerges from the coronavirus crisis. Shadlow, uh, who helped write the national security strategy uh, under President Trump, argues that what we're seeing through this crisis is a lot of the critiques provided by Trump and his uh, policy advisors were unheeded and dangerously ignored leading into this crisis particularly in terms of China's growing uh, power and growing influence in the world. And Shadlow argues, among other things, that we need a much more powerful response and reaction to Chinese aggression and perhaps some of the non-traditional means of aggression China utilizes. What is, how does she propose to address those? For one, I I think she would support uh, President Trump's uh, desire to withdraw funding and support from the World Health Organization. She talks about how China has really manipulated international organizations to its own policy goals rather than to actually serving any sort of 
global good. And I, I think there's a compelling argument there that withdrawing funding from the World Health Organization might probably is a little extreme and wouldn't be beneficial. However, the World Health Organization was absolutely playing defense for China going into this crisis. And uh, it, it seems that communications between uh, both the Chinese Communist Party and WHO were very much um, caught up in tandem. And the way information was spread to the rest of the international community was, was certainly inappropriate. Right. I mean, I feel like there's just been like no repercussions to China's like incredibly deliberate misleading uh, information about the virus when it was first breaking out and still now, you know, like not reporting the that there was even a problem until like December when they'd already known about it for about a month, uh, not reporting the extent of the spread or how deadly it is or just all sorts of issues that arose from that. I'm surprised there's been so little uh, internationally as a result of that. Me too. Shadlow would, um, Shadlow argues that really there is only one institution we should, can, or ought to trust in terms of protecting our safety, and that's the U.S. government. Any uh, international organizations have the risk of letting us down or uh, pandering to the interests of other states, and that really the foreign policy of the United States should be America first and not not uh, internationalism or hyper-globalism first. Where does this where does this leave other countries struggling with like similar issues or with the same issues like a global pandemic? Where does this leave, say, Italy or Iran or other places that are extremely hard hit by the virus? That's a tough question. In part, I mean, she does make note of how much more the uh, United States funds who in China we pay about 15% of the organization's budget compared to China uh, providing about 0.21% um, even still who didn't seem to be particularly effective in curbing the virus's spread elsewhere I think with reduced participation in international organizations there might be some marginal harm done to to states like Italy or Iran. However, there might be a significant increase in the strength between uh with among our alliances with other countries that our partners might get more resources more directly uh or better information or better help from us than they would from an organization that's trying to represent to some extent, every nation on Earth. Should we turn to the, the Thomas Wright piece also from the Atlantic as sort of a, a response to that last part in a way? Yeah, yeah. Thomas Wright argues in the opposite direction of Shadlow, saying that the best thing we can do coming out of this is an absolute recommitment to international cooperation and organizations. And Wright would agree that this is going to lead to a return of power politics. There is going to be much more geopolitical conflict, but thinks the solution to this is uh, 
that we need for international cooperation. He argues that despite the World Health Organization's plan to respond to pandemics, no countries followed the guidance, or he, he's no major countries followed the guidance and tried to act in their own national self-interest rather than trying to prevent the spread of uh, viruses globally. Quite in contrast to Shapley. He also argues that... Um, I mean, he argues sort of uh, in line, in a way, with these other two pieces that there does need to be sort of more uh, independence with regards to sort of production, uh, that uh, the United States, in particular other countries, need to in particular the united states needs to be a little bit more independent from international trade with like respect to producing life-saving equipment but he seems to also argue that that's not feasible for every country and therefore um the there should just be more open and transparent and sort of goodwill cooperation between them with getting resources where they need to be rather than with worrying so much about the the dollar bottom line with how those are distributed certainly and it seems his biggest hope for how to fix this crisis or how to emerge from it successfully uh, is somewhat simple in its uh, in enactment, and that would be just not reelecting uh, Donald Trump. He writes, if Americans hit the reset button in the November election, the Biden opportunity will have an op. He writes. If Americans hit the reset button in the November election, a Biden administration will have the opportunity to turn the page and help lead an international recovery effort. He seems uh, to think... How accurate do you think that statement is, that just a new administration would allow for that international cooperation that he's looking for? I, I just... I don't think it is possible. I don't think a, a return to centrism or polite politics... Um, will have that much of an impact on policy outcomes. Is it a, probably a good thing and a more healthy thing for American political life? Absolutely. But in terms of policy, I'm not convinced it would make that much of a difference. And it's long been discussed that Donald Trump is mocked by foreign leaders, that he's not respected by foreign leaders. Well, I think that's true. I don't think him as an individual has actually harmed American foreign relations vis-a-vis -vis diplomacy with other world leaders that significantly. I, I don't think swapping him out for Biden would suddenly make other countries trust us so much more and uh, be happy to work with us. Right. I mean, I guess the, the hope for uh, a Biden administration would be that they would just like support the, the WHO and all those other organizations that, that Trump is uh, opposed to internationally and just that reestablish those uh, global, global bodies that people like Shadlow think are just outdated and useless. Yeah. And so it is a very tough question trying to assess how beneficial and effective these organizations are. I tend to believe that the United Nations is a good, worthwhile institution, symbolically, but utterly 
ineffective and useless in terms of policy. I mean, I feel like especially in handling a crisis, something like that just doesn't doesn't work. You know, we see that uh, with like, you know the the Rwandan genocide is a pretty obvious one. They refuse to acknowledge, you know, uh, Armenian genocide, like all, all sorts of things that one would think or one would the UN would state would be their mission to help prevent and uh, support resistance to, but they continually show that they can't do it. Yeah, yeah, the. Refusal to do anything about Syria, do anything about Yemen, to do anything about the countless conflicts and small aggressions throughout sub-Saharan Africa and indeed North Africa. I I am not very bullish on the UN's ability to to help in times of crisis. Right, which I feel like isn't necessarily to say that internationalism, international diplomacy is a lost cause and shouldn't be like something that we strive for it's just that the way that these organizations are currently arranged is not an especially effective way and there should probably be a better way of of doing that and addressing those situations see i i i don't think you could reform the un such that it could do a much better job on those maybe changing some of the ways the Security Council vetoes work or how many nations are represented could make decisions better on the margins. But I think it's... I I think a deliberative body between state actors like that is almost always going to end up ineffective and deadlocked between different uh, blocks of of alliances or, or states. I... I do think it's interesting between both Wright and Shadlow. Both of them have a very similar goal and vision insofar as they want the United States to be an international leader and respected and powerful in terms of its abilities to solve these crises and uh, to act in times of emergency. The difference being that Shadlow very much thinks the U.S. should do these sorts of things on its own terms, in its own way, unconstrained by international organizations, whereas Wright really wants the U.S. to take leadership within these organizations. And I don't know, I think I tend towards agreement with Shadlow, you can't simultaneously really do both of these, but I do think it's representative of how a desire for reform is very much pointed in a similar direction. And we're seeing arguments over how to enact policy that will provide us with those incremental improvements. Right. It's, it's, more or less an argument for a continuation of the the sort of neoliberal neoconservative order that has dominated for the past 30 years 40 years um that all the other different theoretical constructions that we've discussed have sort of been pushing against it's like more or less the exact opposite of what they're they're hoping for yeah i think coming out of this we will absolutely see renewed and much strengthened sense of populism in American politics. 
going into 2016 and since it's certainly been uh been a growing movement that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have certainly both stoked and and um been boosted by I think as citizens become much more dependent on uh, the American government for economic health, for various stim- stimuli, with so many people on unemployment, this is going to become even more important, more central. Right. And I mean, I think even on that, that populism subject, I think even more than populism, you'll see a type of localism start to emerge in a much stronger way than we've seen uh, recently, at the very least. Um, like, I can tell you that... Uh, at least in New York, it's it's very much feels like it is about New York, you know? We don't really give that much of a shit about the rest of the country right now. It's all about um, the, the people around us, what our mayor is saying, what our governor is saying. Uh, those are the things that feel like they're most directly impacting New Yorkers and what the New Yorkers care about. And I feel like coming out of this, there will be a much larger sense of, of group identity within the city more than within uh, sort of the country. Um, and I, I feel like that's probably the same in, you know, San Francisco or L.A. or any other major Absolutely. metropolitan areas that have been hit pretty hard by this. Well, I thought it's very interesting that there are new sort of blocks of interstate, interstate relations that seem to be developing, mostly as a counterweight to Donald Trump. Uh, Gavin Newsom leading sort of grouping of California, Oregon, Washington, and trying to develop plans to deal with this, to figure out when to reopen, how to deal with economic issues. And it it seems like uh, Governor Cuomo, likewise, uh, has occupied a similar role for for some of the uh, neighboring states to New York. I I think you're right. Uh, Localism and, and federalism are certainly going to grow coming out of this and that might offer an opportunity for reformism indeed a reformism of, of its own sort it would be interesting if to some extent the u.s slides much closer to the style of government envisioned by the articles of confederation prior to the constitution of a much more loose alliance of self-governing states coming together on some terms uh, rather than the inverse. Per- perhaps we'll emerge from this in the next decade or two looking much more like the European Union uh, than, than we do at the moment, which considering the, the much greater degree of shared culture and history in the United States contra Europe as a whole, I, I think might be a good United States more akin to the European Union could be a very good thing. Right. I think that makes sense. I think especially if the sort of industrial and international policy related to production does change pretty significantly, you know, uh, within the United States, it'll be almost sort of like those, those uh, mini nations in a way, say like a, a region that controls uh, medical production or something like that. Um, and so the, the trade between states will be a matter rather than the trade internationally to a much greater extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that seems like a necessity to me. I Trying to come up with 
universal labor laws or business regulations across the United States right now just seems very, very infeasible. The needs of Idaho, Wyoming, Utah versus the needs of Texas, Florida, California, New York are just so wildly different that I, I think we'll see a lot of these powers sort of devolve to the states. So over the past several weeks, uh, we've been discussing different, obviously different ways of responding to the, uh, the problem of government in a post-corona era. Um, the accelerationism one is really the one that I find most exciting uh, and simultaneously most frightening with this idea that we can possibly bring about a... Uh, accelerated or exacerbated capitalist post-capitalist space uh potentially post-human space um in a way that could potentially be beneficial to to people but also would likely require a lot of uh of violence a, a lot of destruction in order to do and the way that looks what an accelerationist uh world would actually be is something that i find uh, impossible to imagine. I think uh, anyone who would think too seriously about it would have a very difficult time coming up with what that looks like. Yeah, but it certainly provides some exciting possibilities. And it's fun for the imagination. For myself, go ahead. I think that um, the the like critical theory backings of it too, I think have a very good vocabulary for looking at the world and for understanding our present situation. Uh, in a very useful way. Um, the idea of schizophrenia in particular, I think, is one that uh, we can really apply in a very useful useful way in examining how uh, we are manipulated and stifled by late capitalism. For myself, it seems like the most likely change that we'll see, and some possibility perhaps the most beneficial is growing tense towards post-liberalism. I think as an empirical matter, we are seeing and will continue to see political actors trying to gain more power, more control, and that the states would generally be centralizing and having a much larger role in the daily lives of citizens, and particularly within the social dimension, including public faith, public morality, and things of that sort. It is possible for this to go astray, and there's certainly some, I think, bad actors leading post-liberal movements. There are also some really interesting, insightful academics, particularly, I think, Adrian Vermeule, who are trying to imagine as the world is changing in these ways, and as the liberal order seems to be failing, how are ways that we can shape a society to come to be more humane and to deal with human social concerns in a way that the status quo just simply does not? And I, I think part of this might also be, in the United States case in particular, among smaller actors than we've seen before. Um, growing power and growing centralization probably within the states such as California, New York, Texas. 
rather than, than just at the federal level, the United States government. Right. And personally, I find myself a little bit resistant to the idea of the government imposing a sort of morality on individuals, um, especially for that possibility. And uh, really, I think from what we've seen in uh, sort of real world post-liberal scenarios, the the instance of those bad actors really taking over, but becoming very uh, authoritarian and oppressive in a way that people really aren't okay with, wouldn't be able to handle, wouldn't be good for them overall. And, you know, the idea of there being a sort of benevolent uh, puppet master in a way guiding people's morality and nudging people in an appropriate, uh, uh, morally good direction is uh, a beautiful idea. Um, but I, the reality of it is a little bit uh, frightening to me. Yeah. And I think that's something that was dealt with very well by, by the piece uh, William Lombardo wrote for, for Athwart, uh, Beyond Realism. It seems to me that the governments uh, in Hungary and Poland, which are probably the, the best case studies for how this is advancing, are pretty popular uh, among among citizens, but remains to be seen how how exactly this will play out. Right. And what we talked about today, the reformism is almost a counterpoint to that in a way. And I think in America right now seems to be the most popular idea among citizens, the idea that we can work within what we already have going to establish a more effective government, a more effective, probably more uh, more populist and more uh, locally based, more more based, more America first in a way, uh, in a almost post-Trumpian sort of way to kind of move forward as we were before but better um and as the the right piece pointed out uh, i guess that we'll kind of wait and see in november what shape that ends up taking and and i think as upton pointed out trade independence is going to be major component of this likely uh beyond just reformism for any post liberal or even i think accelerationist changes American production is going to have to come back. The The state of the economy right now is just untenable. Uh, thanks for listening to this series. Thanks for sticking by as we discuss theory in the time of quarantine. Uh, we're going to be going back to sort of the format of our first episode coming up. Uh, we should have something uh, exciting and lively for you within the next week or so. Want to give them a sneak peek of what we'll be talking about, Peter? Yeah, this is sort of inspired by the, the Accelerations episode a little bit. We'll be kind of independent of that. We'll be discussing the uh, the idea of the slacker in popular culture and what that means outside of popular culture in the real world, and especially in a world where we're all basically doing nothing all the time. Um, and then later we will possibly be discussing a minor twitter personality of interesting uh, an interesting guy <laughs> cool so hope you join us again next week thank you for following us on this journey thus far leave us a review it'd help a lot if you have any questions comment if you have any suggestions let us know and check out our website link in the bio thank you very much <laughs>